when should we care about robots? Right now, it's safe to say that likely most of us do not, uh, but how quickly should that change or will that change? In this particular episode on the Tech Emergence podcast, I interview a PhD for DePaul University by the name of David Junkel, who is now a professor and does a lot of his own work on how we make moral valuations of non-human entities, and particularly artificial intelligences. We speak a bit today as to how very arbitrary our, our moral weighing is, what kind of properties and what categories of beings we allow into our moral sphere is a relatively arbitrary and biased process, and what that might imply in a future where we're actually creating aware entities. He speaks as to how we might want to uh, set in place policies for the treatment of robots and artificial intelligence, even if they are not sentient, because of its effect on us, and some of his thoughts around how policy itself might take into consideration the impending reality of sentient and intelligent machines. So without further ado, we'll roll into this episode. So David, I'll, I'll begin with sort of teeing up this question of how do we value a machine entity? Um, you know, this, this kind of machine question that you, you reference uh, in your book and, and that we might consider to be uh, a moral of, of great moral consequence. Um, I know you, you like to frame it in, in multiple terms to really get a grasp of the consequences that we're dealing with when it comes to kind of creating entities or, or morally valuing things. Um, how do you frame that and how do we think through that? Sure. Okay, so the question really is about moral standing. How do we decide whether something does or does not have moral standing? For example, we live in a world where some entities have moral standing. Standing, um, you know, our children have moral standing, but the rock that we kick down the road or the iPhone that we keep in our pocket don't generally have moral consideration, not moral subjects. Yep. And so the question becomes where and how do we draw the line that, you know, decides who's inside and who's outside? the moral community. And traditionally, we made this decision on a kind of properties approach to entities. Uh, this is coming from the innovations of Mark Cockleberg, who writes a great deal about this. And he says, you know, if you look at the history of moral philosophy, it really is about deciding which properties are the qualifying properties for moral standing, and then figuring out a way whether to know that an entity has or doesn't have those qualities. So traditionally, the qualities for moral standing are things like rationality, yep. sentience, uh, the ability to use language, these kinds of things. And you know, every entity then that has those properties generally fall into the community of moral subjects. The problem over time is that those properties have changed. They've not been consistent. At one time, the properties were very restrictive and limiting, for example, in the Greco-Roman period, uh, which allowed the you know, land-owning male to uh, basically exclude from moral consideration his wife and his children who were considered property and could be sold and dispensed of as he saw fit. And in, you know, more recent times with the innovations of Peter Singer and Tom Regan with animal rights philosophy, we've decided to lower the bar, right? It's no longer rationality. It's no longer the ability to use language. But following the innovations of Jeremy Bentham, the question is, do they suffer? Can they feel? Yep. And so... The animal innovation in ethics has really been about lowering the bar for inclusion so that the properties that are qualifying properties are no longer as high in the sort of hierarchy of properties as they once were uh, previously. Yep. So there's really two problems with the properties approach. I mean, it's, it's worked really well. I mean, this is really the, 
way we've done moral philosophy for 2,000 years, and it served us you know, pretty well for 2,000 years, but we've run into some problems. And let me just talk about these two problems. One is an ontological problem. The other one is an epistemological problem. So the ontological problem is this. How do we know which properties qualify? Yeah. And when do we know whether we've lowered the bar too far or raised it too high? Which properties are the properties that count? And more importantly, who gets to decide? Notice it's we who get to decide which properties count. And therefore, we're in the driver's seat. We get to decide who is included and who is not included. And those decisions have you know, historically made some very bad outcomes for a large portion of humanity. So for a period of time, women were considered property. And that was perfectly fine as far as men were concerned. Now, we've been enlightened and that's been changed over time. But there are still ways in which this bar about you know, properties is a problem. So, for example, sentience and animals. Where do you decide where sentience begins and ends with an animal? I mean, yeah, your dog. Okay, yeah, that's sentient. Okay, what about a squid? What about a lobster? For Tom Regan in particular, only mammals qualify as sentient. Huh, that's curious. Well, I mean, now, does, does, when we talk about sentience, just to uh, clarify Tom Regan's perspective, does he believe only mammals can be aware of actual feelings in terms of pains, pleasures? Yeah, well, I don't want to speak for Regan, but I think it really comes down to... That would seem, that would seem incorrect, but... Yeah, I think it really comes down to what he thinks can suffer. And I think, in his mind, lobsters don't suffer, so you can boil them alive. It doesn't matter. Man. Um, yeah, I think, I think maybe we should kind of look at the neurology there. But either way, um, okay, so that's his consideration. It's, it's a rather brutal way of deciding... It, it, sounds, it sounds, you know, it, it, um, it has a smack, or it, you know, it, 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 you know, it, it smells to me a bit like uh, the same kind of tribalism that we had as humans, right? I mean, you know, like we, we like we're, we're really want to draw hard lines around things that aren't our kind, you know? And, and our kind used to be our, our town and then our skin color and then maybe our religion, and then maybe our species, humans. You know, okay, well, you know, those dark-skinned folks, you know, yeah, they get it, but, 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 but not stuff that isn't people. And then it's like, well, maybe some animals get it, but, but not stuff that doesn't fall under mammalia, because that one arbitrary branch of evolutional progress was certainly the only kind that has moral weight. That's sort of, uh, I mean, it, it appears to be kind of the same sort of tribal ring, but, but I could be wrong, and I'm not going to speak for him either, but... That sounded odd to me. Yeah, no, and this is the problem with the properties approach, because the question then becomes which properties, who gets to decide which properties, and when do you know whether or not you've got the right mix of properties? And, you know, moral philosophy has been a struggle over this question for 2,000 years, and up till this point, we don't seem to have gotten it right. We seem to have gotten it wrong more often than we seem to have gotten it right, making exclusions that later on are seen as being somehow problematic and dangerous. So that's the first problem, is the ontological problem of which property and why. The second problem is an epistemological problem. So let's say you decide on a set of properties and you're pretty satisfied with those properties. Because these properties generally are internal states, consciousness, sentience, thought, whatever, they're not something we can observe directly, right? Because they happen inside the cranium or inside the entity, we don't see it occurring exactly as we describe it. What we have to do is look at external evidence. So what we're looking at is what's called the other minds problem in philosophy. How do I know that another entity is a thinking, feeling thing like I assume myself to be? How do I know that you are a rational thinking thing? 
the fact of the matter is, it's tough. I don't know for certain. No, I no, yes, yeah, it's hard. You know, based on behavior, but that's about as far as I can get. It is, it is, yeah. The guess is on behavior. All you have is your senses, right? I mean, you you can't uh, you can't get behind my eyeballs. Correct. As Donna Haraway says, you can't crawl into the heads of others to get the story from the inside. No, you can't. So we have a version of the Turing test problem. Our interrogating entities to see whether or not they give evidence of owning the property that makes them a moral subject. And so the question then becomes, if you create a machine that is able to simulate pain, as we've been able to do, we have machines that run away from light. Uh, Rod Brooks has designed these robots that are afraid of the light. So you see this robot and it runs away from the light. Do you assume the robot's feeling pain? How yeah. do you assign um, you know, causality to these kinds of behaviors? And as you get more and more into this, you find out, for example, if you follow the work of Daniel Dennett, you know, he has this great essay called Why You Can't Build a Computer That Feels Pain. And the reason you can't build a computer that feels pain isn't because you can't engineer the mechanism. It's because we don't know what pain is. We don't know how to make pain computable, not because we can't do it computationally, but because we don't even know what we're trying to compute. We don't know what pain is. We have assumptions and think we know what it is and experience it. But the actual thing we call pain is a conjecture. It's always a projection that we make based on external behaviors. Yeah, so so how do we get a legitimate understanding of what pain is? Again, you know, we could delve into do they have the same kinds of neurons that we have. But then again, again, as you're addressing, we're just still reading signs. We're still taking this picture seriously and this picture seriously. And, you know, it is a conjecture one way or another. So one way to think about all this then is to shift the question. Maybe morality is not a matter of properties. Maybe the properties approach is already getting us into trouble in such a way that we need to reconfigure how we think about moral inclusion. And that moral standing may be something that is much less about ontological properties and is maybe something that is more configurable in a kind of social constructivist way of thinking about things. Uh, Cockleberg and I have been talking about this for a number of years now, that it's a relational approach to deciding moral standing, that we live in a world in which we encounter other entities and we decide based on our interactions who gets to be inside and who gets to be outside the realm of moral standing. So for example, dogs and pigs are not that different. Pigs we know are just as intelligent as dogs and sometimes could even be better pets than dogs. But we've made a decision that allows the dog into the home as a pet and makes the pig food. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, part of that, and again, David, I mean, I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but I, I think part of that is is not based on the, liter, the literal sentient qualities of the animal, but based on its relation to us, wh wh whom we believe to be higher up the moral uh, scale of moral gravity, and because it is bound to our own well-being, our our own happiness or not happiness, more so than pigs, for whatever reason. I mean, maybe pigs would make great pets. I, I'm not sure, David. I don't have either uh, because I, 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 I would be a horrible I, – I don't know how to take care of plants. I never mind, uh, you know, people, animals. You know, but, uh, but I, so I don't know, but, but we've allowed dogs to fill that emotional spot, and so now they tie to our own well-being, and, and most people probably don't make that philosophical jump, but – but now they've been endowed because they relate to our own feelings and isn't that now relating to the feelings of an even more relevant entity? Is that right? Is that wrong? Geez, that's a toughie. Well, and what I'm trying to get at is we need to begin to see 
our moral decision-making as being a little more capricious than we think it is. We in, think it's incredibly rational and based on properties. Yeah. The fact of the matter is, when you really look at the way that morality functions in our world, it is far more capricious. It is far more based on these kinds of relational decisions that we make in the face of others who we either let in or don't let in, depending on culture, depending on um, tradition, depending on individual choice, etc. And so the challenge to us is, if we're looking at a future in which we're going to have robots in our homes, social robots of various forms and shapes and sizes, taking care of grandma and grandpa, watching the children, assisting us in our job, uh, you know, won't we also be in a position where certain decisions could be made that would allow them either into or exclude them from moral consideration? And if you look at the way things have been going recently, I mean, we see this kind of debate happening in our current world. I mean, we've allowed corporations to be considered people. A law, you know, was passed in India recently that made dolphins having the status of people and therefore needing to be considered on par with you and I with regards to rights. Yep. So these sorts of questions, I think, are really crucial because we're going to engineer these things. We're going to build these devices. They are going to enter our world. This is not science fiction. It's science fact. But once they're there, what do we do with it? Yeah, so so we can move into uh, machines in, in a second here. Um, the, uh, the the I suppose the question that we're addressing now, you know, with with opening up the notion that that these are capricious distinctions, I think is an important one because for for me personally, David, be and and hopefully not just for me personally, I'll cross my fingers on that, um, is because I think otherwise the conversation doesn't happen, right? We don't know what we don't know. And I think it's relatively easy to assume because in general, it seems to work okay. Um, and, and in general, we don't think through this lens of abstraction that the way we make moral distinctions about rights and wrongs, etc., cetera, uh, that, that it is hyper-arbitrary and sometimes ridiculous. Um, I think that unless you're sort of aware of that, then how or why would you ever question it as anything other than gravity? Um, <clears throat> and and we should question gravity as well. But but I think that I think that if we don't, if if we aren't even aware that it is as blatantly horrendously arbitrary as it is, then then we won't think to rethink it even when we should. Um, and so I, I'm of the belief that that that's really why that that point uh, is a grand one. It sounds like kind of the capriciousness is something you aim to highlight yourself. Right, and precisely because I think we need to be critical of this decision-making process and not fool ourselves into thinking that we're somehow being incredibly reasonable, rational, and empirical about something that tends to be a little more flexible and a little less, uh, you know, grounded in uh, a firm basis in logic. Um, I think you know part of what we need to do is, following Nietzsche, we have to interrogate the values behind our values. I mean, we have a set of values, yeah. But Organizing those values, there are much deeper assumptions and values that don't seem to get interrogated. And I think one of the things I'm trying to do is to get people to ask these questions, to sort of own up to the exclusionary practices of moral philosophy and say, okay, that's been our history. Can we do better? Is there a possibility to think through this problem that we don't fool ourselves into thinking we're doing something that we're not doing? And, and, what, are, and what are some of uh, your, your thoughts there? In other words, um, when it comes to... Uh, creating, you know, uh, an artificial intelligence, what are some of the opened up questions that we should potentially address as we move into a future where machines are, 
A, more intelligent, which is hard to question, and B, uh, possibly sentient, which some people question overtly and I think is actually still pretty much open game. Um, what, what are your thoughts around sort of some of the, the, the big rocks that we'll have to move early on? Yeah, so I think one of the big rocks we have to move early on is the one that you just mentioned about sentience. One of the ways people generally respond to the question of AI and robots having some sort of moral standing is to say the following. Yeah, it's just an object. It's just a tool that I use to get some work done. It's no more sentient or important than my smartphone or my lawnmower. And, you know, until you have a robot that is like the ones you see in the, the TV show Humans, yep. I don't need to worry about it. Yep. And so, you know, once you invent that, come talk to me. But until that time, I'm just going to use this stuff the way I want to use it. End of story. Uh, thank you, no, you know, thank you, but no thank you. It's interesting, but that's all philosophical. It's not real. My response is no. It is extremely real right now. And if we don't start to answer and ask these questions immediately, we're going to find ourselves down the road much further on than we would like to be when it comes to actually encountering anything that could be called sentient. In got, other words, I want to say that sentience may be a red herring. It may be the way that we excuse thinking about this problem to say that it's not our problem now, we'll just kick it down the road. Because it's not aware yet is what you're saying? Exactly. I think it's not a question of the awareness of the machine. I don't think it's about the machine at all. I think the machine is a, it could remain a dumb object for as long as humans are alive, that won't matter. What's going to matter is how we relate to it. Yeah. What's going to matter is what we do with it in our world. So, so, huh, this is interesting. Well, you know, I, I, um, I believe like you do that, uh, whether or not, uh, we have sentient machines now, we should take these considerations, uh, very seriously. Um, but it seems as though for, for you, whether they ever become sentient or, or not, um, how we, treat them or how they're treated in, in our world is, is sort of the big deal. Um, in what way or, or how do you mean that? I know this is a little bit of a different take. Normally it's about the machine as the, the moral entity. You like to talk about how we will relate to and treat the machine as a moral entity. Um, how do you like to kind of try to crack that nut or take that question seriously? So what I want us to do is I want us to look seriously at the way that we situate these objects in our world. How do they come into our life? Where do we place them in our domicile? What do we do in relationship to them? We don't have much of a record here with regards to any kind of object like this, right? The smartphone is probably the closest thing we have going right now. Um, and some people, you know, have difficulties getting rid of one of their smartphones because they're used to the way it works and they sort of, you know, are attached to it in a very odd way. Um, and an upgrade is somehow out of the ordinary for them. But I think part of what's going on is that we are seeing very slowly these machines come into our world and we don't have a rule book for how we treat them. Um, I think, you know, the, I, this is one way of putting it very starkly, but, you know, are these going to be like a social robot? Is it just going to be a slave? Are we manufacturing a generation of slaves? Are we, you know, going to have an Athenian democracy with a you know, set of servants that do our bidding so that we can get on with the more important things in life? Or are we going to treat them like companions? There's already evidence that the uh, elderly that get these uh, seal, these paro seal robots, 
treat them oftentimes as companions, as yeah. like pets. And if grandma starts treating her baby seal robot like a pet, what happens when that baby seal robot has to be taken away um, or replaced with another one? We don't have a lot of record in terms of human activity with regards to this kind of involvement. I think the only thing I can think of you know, in terms of our history that speaks to this is children and their stuffed animals. We know they're dumb stuffed animals, and yet they're really important. You can't just replace a child stuffed animal with one that looks just like it. The child knows the difference. Yep. And there's a way in which we connect on these objects in ways that we never anticipate doing so. And so, for, for you in part, uh, as part of kind of the ethical considerations here, like, it, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I'm not exactly how sure positively or negatively, and those aren't the greatest terms, but bear with me, uh, uh, you know, if, if a, a truckload of completely unsentient, unaware, unaware helper elderly robots, you know, exploded in a fire, um, I may or may not cry myself to sleep. Cer certainly you know, a bunch of horses or people, you know, it seemed like that's pretty rough. If they were sentient, by golly, that does seem to be pretty rough. Um, if they weren't, maybe to me it doesn't. What you're saying, though, and, and this is just a, a thought, is that um, the way that we treat them sort of perpetuates our overall morality and how we are to other people and how our own world is. So if we treat robots like slaves, will we begin treating other people that way or will we now feel in some kind of entitled sense will it degrade us morally if we treat these machines in an improper way even if they are never sentient if we treat these machines in an improper ways is this what you're speaking to in some sense partially yeah this is this is a, a Kantian argument remember uh, Immanuel Kant didn't have a whole lot of love for animals but he did say you shouldn't kick your dog because when you kick your dog you diminish the moral sphere in which we all live yeah yeah okay I, and I to be frank I think that that has credence I think that you know, if, if these unsentient things are, are treated, if we treat them in ways that, you know, are sort of, uh, that have a tinge to them that we would never treat a person, it, it almost seems as, as though there is an effect on how we think of ourselves and what kind of behavior is now permissible across the board, and maybe, like you said, it affects the moral sphere. So you said a tingent argument, just uh, it, elaborate a bit. It's an argument from Kant. Go for it. Well, this is, this is Kant's argument where he says that, you know, you don't kick... It's not about the dog. It's about us. Yep. It's about what happens to us when we kick our dog. Yep. And I think, you know, there's, there's some uh, traction there. I think that that's a very interesting way to think about it because there is a diminishment to the sort of overall way we think about moral standing and who's in and who's out and the, the sort of moral community to which we belong. If, if we permit this kind of cruelty to others... It does have an effect, huh? Um, and and so, what are your you know in closing here? What are some of your thoughts around maybe how, what what we might want to set in place, or what kind of uh, maybe ground rules policy wise might be fruitful in your own inklings um, as we start to move into a world that is increasingly involving the interactions with robots, sometimes humanoids, sometimes not, what are some fail-safes or, or you know, policy changes or, or ethical considerations uh, today around helping that moral sphere and, and maintaining that semblance of, you know, as vague as it sounds, goodness and as vague as it sounds, virtue uh, with, with our, ourselves? 
Sure. No, this, these are good questions. Um, so let me sort of outline a couple of steps, or maybe three steps, that, that we need to at least think about. The first question that we need to look at is, what is it we are designing? I think we need to be very careful about what we do or do not design. Um, engineering is a incredibly results-generated kind of opportunity, right? The engineer looks at designing something in order to get results. We don't spend a lot of time in the design process thinking about the ethical outcomes of what is designed. But I think more and more, we need to begin thinking at the design state, actually making. And is the design of this object something that we want to let into our world? I think the most recent best example of this is the open letter on autonomous weapons that was issued two days ago. The question is not whether or not people are going to use the weapon, but whether we should even be designing these things to begin with. Should we even be constructing weapons with autonomous capabilities? And the letter basically is a, is a plea to the world of engineers, the world of scientists to say, don't even build these things, because if you do, it's going to create an AI arms race. And so they're saying, you know, think about design. Think about what it is we do at that stage of the process. The second thing I think we need to look at is after these things are created, what do we do with them? How do we situate them in our world? How do we relate to them once they are in our homes, in our workplace? How do we respond in the face of the machine, if you want to put it that way? It's sort of a Levinasian question. But, you know, when, when the machine is there in your sphere of existence, what do we do in response to it? We don't have answers for that yet, but I think we need to start asking those questions in an effort to begin thinking about what is the social status and standing of these non-human entities that will be part of our world and living with us in various ways. I, I, yeah, okay, got it. Anyway, I feel like I interrupted you. Go ahead. Oh, that's okay. And then lastly, I think we've got to keep a, a, you know, a close eye on what happens in law and policy. Um, there are you know, court decisions being made that I think are setting up precedent that could either be very useful or very problematic depending on how things go. So the Indian court allowing dolphins to be considered a person is a really important move on the front of animal rights. Um, the you know, Citizens United decision in the United States, which you know, declared that corporations are people and have the right to speech and even the right to religion, that's a very important uh, you know, decision for corporate law in the U.S. But when these precedents start to line up, it seems very easy to make the same argument for an AI which is also an artificial entity, like a corporation, and it is possible at some point that this precedent could carry over into designed systems that are autonomous. Um, you know, you would never say that a corporation is sentient. It's no. made up of sentient people, but the yep. corporation itself isn't sentient, and yet it is a person, both legally and morally. And so I think the, the, the legal aspect of this is really important because I think we're making decisions now well in advance of these kinds of machines being in our world, setting a precedent for our receptivity to the legal and moral standing of these other kinds of entities. Got it. And, and, and uh, I think, again, one of many reasons to, uh, to bring up these conversations now is because, uh, shucks, it's, it's not going to be a clear-cut answer when it happens. We might as well maybe sort of whittle down sort of how this might roll out uh, at present so that we can deal with the future uh, ahead of us. Correct. And I think 
everyone has got to be talking about it. I, I don't think we can say that this is just the purview of a few philosophers who do special no, no. In, in robotics. I think engineers have got to be talking about it. AI scientists have got to be talking about it. Computer scientists have got to be talking about it. It needs to be a fully interdisciplinary conversation. I, I'm, I'm with it's you. It's going to roll out on that kind of scale. Big time. And, and the, uh, the, the, the core tenets of tech emergence here, I mean, for the show and otherwise, is the, the proliferation of a open-minded, well-intended, and interdisciplinary global conversation around so the ethical consequences of our technologies. And, and uh, it sounds like um, you're, you're interested in furthering that as well, and hopefully we've done a bit of that today, uh, Dr. Junkel. So thank you so much for being here on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was fun. And that wraps up this episode on the Tech Emergence Podcast. Thanks for being here. And remember to subscribe on iTunes to stay on top of the latest news breaks, researcher perspectives, and entrepreneur interviews in artificial intelligence, neurotechnology, and more. And we want to hear from you as well. So be sure to leave a review on iTunes, which are always appreciated, or contact us directly at info at And remember, all of our entrepreneur interviews and interviews with top researchers from around the world, from Stanford to Oxford and beyond, can be found right on our main site at techemergence.com. Remember to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. So with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Figella signing off, and I'll see you next week.